Hi, beautiful listeners. Welcome to the Teacher Healer podcast, where we get to geek out on all things education and heal the world at the same time. Barbara Smith is a passionate educator who enjoys challenging boundaries. Barbara's background includes over 40 years in public, charter, independent and international schools. She has started three schools and has been a teacher, principal, consultant, trustee and teacher educator at Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, McGill University and the University of Saskatchewan Teaching Faculties and Graduate Schools. Barbara now spends her time writing, supporting schools and school systems and sharing her ideas on how to make bold changes in education on a global level. Listen to Barbara talk about how we can better attract and retain teachers and manage school budgets to make the difference that students need. Hi, Barb. Welcome to the Teacher Healer podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I know that you've spent over 40 years in the education sector, uh, but I was wondering, what have you been up to since retiring? Well, uh, first of all, I miss teaching and being a uh, school leader uh, so much, but I was at the point where I needed to make sense of uh, a lot of things that I experienced over 40 years. Um, I'd started schools and I'd been in many different kinds of schools and I kind of looked at my desktop, which was a disaster in a sense because I, I call it my parking lot. So whenever something happened that I thought might be unique or distinct or something worthwhile sharing somewhere down the line, I would you know, put it on my, uh, in those folders on my parking lot. And so for the last two years, I've basically been opening those folders and, and coming up with, um, some things that really I felt, uh, drive me, uh, in many ways to be concerned about the, the current systems and, um, schooling that, that, that is happening and not just in North America, but I, I've seen, um, many concerns worldwide, um, about some of the, the things that aren't as engaging in schools as as should be. So I wrote the book a few years ago called How Much Does a Great School Cost? Because when I started schools, that's when I realized that um, the amount of uh, money that is afforded for certain line items in a, uh, a budget tell you a lot about their values. So I started there. I started with that idea of following the money. And then that led me to a book on assessment because I realized that there's a lot of money wasted on standardized testing that could be used to uh, reduce class sizes and uh, make a difference for teachers. And that led me to the more recent book that's coming out in the spring on teacher retention. So that's basically what I've been doing um, and living in the north uh, in Canada and also living in Florida for half of the time. So I do a lot of my writing from two different locations during the year. How lovely. So what do you think so far would have been your greatest achievement in your career? I think I've been really fortunate to mentor and actually be mentored by uh, people that uh, that I mentored, it kind of goes both ways, uh, by some pretty bold and brave um, educators. And they're creative. And, and I've been very proud of being able to support them to do things that haven't been done before or haven't been, uh, you know, doing this the same thing that other schools are, are doing. I feel that schools really need to be able to identify with some kind of purpose other than being a school. And, and so I guess I'm most proud of, of those connections that, that I've been able to make and uh, really to support them to be curriculum designers and not just, oh, which textbook can I find that's really good? That these people think beyond that. Um, and encourage teachers to think about designing experiences in classrooms that are going to make memories. And I always ask that question of what they're doing right now, is this going to help make a memory? And to me, that's a bit of a litmus test for something that is engaging. And there's not 
not much of their um, that students are experiencing in that area because the the emphasis on standardized test and test preparation curriculum is taking uh, away from our capacity to help kids think and and solve problems. Mm, there's a, there's a lot in that that I want to go into if that's okay. The, sure. the first thing is is I've heard that memories are most easily created when there is intense emotion, either positive or negative. And so I feel like a lot of people do walk away with quite a number of negative experiences from their schooling, but those positive um, feelings can range from anything of pride, excitement, and that kind of thing. So I just, um, that's something for our listeners to think about. You know, if you're trying to create a memory in the classroom, it's how are you activating that positive emotion? Um, And I I feel like standardized tests and preparing for them probably doesn't do a lot of that. Um, I think we find it boring. They often find it boring. But there, there are ways to get around that by by making what what you're practicing in engaging. But yeah, it's better to work outside that kind of system to create those emotions. That's just my thought on that. What yeah, do you think? And it, well, I I can I think it everything always sounds like it makes more sense when you give a context. And um, when I was part of the team that founded the Jalen Rose Leadership Academy in Detroit, Michigan, one of the English assignments that we set up was for students to go once a week to a senior's home. And they had to interview the seniors and write their biographies. But it wasn't that simple that they went, you know, with pad and paper and, and wrote things down. They had to form trusting relationships with these people. And uh, it was a very powerful experience for, for many of them because they learned a lot about seniors. They learned a lot about um, how they're lonely. They learned um, things about others that sometimes education seems to be so focused on the individual and the ranking of scores. They forget that perhaps education for the social aims, in a sense, should be about, you know, how can we set up teaching and learning so that you are learning about how to write and, and, and learning about different using different conventions and so on, but in the context of something of value. And I call that like purpose, um, purpose-based curriculum and project-based uh, curriculum, project-based learning, for example, fits beautifully with a purpose-based model because the projects are, are usually being done in a community to, to help and to, to make a difference so that they're authentic, they have a real audience. They're not just handing a, an assignment into a teacher to grade, which is, you know, very superficial and and it really doesn't have uh, a memory-making kind of relevance to it. Yeah, I absolutely love that. That's certainly been the basis of um, the last four years of the work that I've been doing, um, not of my own making. That was the organization I used to work for. That was their focus. How can we make this real? How can we make this engaging? Mm-hmm. How can we connect with community? Um, so I am really behind that. Um, the The other question I had based on your earlier comment was about being bold and brave. That mm-hmm. is something that I, th- I feel like I aspire to. I've you've fallen into my world quite, quite by accident. And I feel like I found a gorgeous mentor in you because I see a lot of who I want to be in, in you and what you're doing. And I want to learn a bit more about that because boldness is something I want to inspire in other school leaders, especially. And it's something I want to bring more of myself. I want teachers to learn to be brave, to stand up for what's right against the system. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So what is your advice for being bold and brave in education? Wow, there's a whole continuum of things that teachers can and have done that have demonstrated, you know, evidence of, of being brave. Um, probably one of the biggest brave things that I did maybe started doing about 20, 15 years ago was starting new schools because I felt at one point the system was so uh, and I love the way you talk about healing. It needed so much uh, attention, but it was like, okay, there's a lot of um, people with capacity to be able to help, but there were gatekeepers that wouldn't allow that to happen. So starting in your own school, um, for some people who really have really strong feelings about doing um 
you know, better things for, for, for students and teachers in the community is, is a very brave thing to do because it, it's an, it's an enormous task. It actually parallels very much like starting a business. Um, so if someone says, well, I'm going to start a school, but I'm going to turn my phone off at five o'clock. <laughs> you, you can't do that. Um, if that, that parent needs you at a certain time, um, when you're, when you're really trying to get things going and develop trust in the community, um, it's a very selfless kind of experience. So to be bold is one thing and to talk, uh, it's something else to put that talk into action. So, so on a big scale, starting your own school is one level. Um, on a, on a systematic scale where you're inside of a system, um, trying to get a system to set up perhaps a lab school or to set up a school that is permitted to do things differently. Um, it takes time and, and it does mean that sometimes you have to become an expert in, in other areas. So I started out as a health consultant in a school board years ago. Um, and I realized that the power in education was all in English language arts. Like that's, that's where it all is. So doing integrated projects years ago, um, we did this project called uh, Project Smokescreen, where these grade 11 students were peer teaching grade five students in the elementary schools around them um, about, you know, the evils of, of smoking and, and trying to set up anti-smoking campaigns. But the interesting part is the students themselves, most of them were smokers when we started. So there was a huge behavioral change right away when they changed their role. So that made me go back and say, hmm, okay, I'm going to I'm going to learn more about linguistics and and because that's a very full part of it. And I'm going to use that to be able to um, tell people that, you know, it's, uh, you know, there's so much you can learn in education. So you want to ground what you're doing um, in in the theory and the good practices that are there. So it takes time, like, you know, to be bold off the, you know, when I put comments on LinkedIn or I put comments on Twitter, it's easy to be bold. But when people say, well, what does that look like? I hope that in 40 years, I've got something that'll back up what that boldness is. And so I try to encourage a lot of my uh, mentees um, to, to, to be bold, but to, to take chances on, on their ideas. Um, and I wrote a, another book called The Gatekeepers. And I asked 10 of my mentees to write uh, chapters. And then I asked my mentors to write chapters. So it's full of really great stories about things that that people did that went against the grain and do not to be afraid of it. And I challenge leadership a lot. Like, are you a leader or are you a manager? A manager is going to polish the system is going to grease the the gears that are in place, but it, the manager mm. won't take the gears apart like a great um, watchmaker, right? And and a leader will because the leader has to put them together differently mm. if the goal is to help all students, right? Right now, some students are helped by our system. Some that's not enough. That doesn't cut it for me. We have to figure out a way to do things better, and that take you have to take risks to do that. And sometimes you're going to fail so much, it's just going to happen. But if you don't do anything, then you're accepting the way things are. And and they really can be better. I'm very inspired by that. I hope you guys out there are also very inspired by that. (laughs) Um, As a follow-up question, there's a lot of pressure, certainly in Australia, I've noticed that uh, people are sort of sick of the experimenting on kids. That's what they're saying in the news a lot. Don't experiment on our kids. Um, <laughs> it, it kind of steps in the way of us trying to be bold in that way. And we feel like we have to justify every decision we make based on what is evidence-based practice, what is proven to work. What, what's your antidote for that? Well, I kind of, will we'll almost skip to that, um, you know, to your question about how do you heal the world? I'm going to like go big on this answer first Yes, and say that the answer to the world problems right now do not exist on page 25 of a textbook. They don't exist on some really glossy software program or website. They do not exist. If we're preparing our young people to solve those problems of tomorrow, then they need to be in an education that allows them to actually be 
thinking and creating and coming up with new ideas. And they can't do that if 80 or 90% of the time that occupies their six to seven hours in school is dedicated to test preparation of questions that actually are answers to things we already know in the past. And I say that about students, and I also say that about teachers, because if teachers are really relegated to just doing as they're told, follow these objectives, you've got 77 of them, you've got 180 days a year, you've got maybe three days to, to get the kids to master them, and then you put 25 kids in a class, that's ridiculous. They can't get 100% of those kids to master them. So they talk about gap and they talk about learning loss. That is, and they can blame the pandemic all they want, but this has been happening for a long time. The gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger because the system hasn't determined what is essential in each year. And if teachers could come together and say, what are the most essential understandings that these kids have to have in this grade that will build on what they need for the next grade. And they were only told they had to choose 10. They probably would do a great job as long as they were rigorous because they have to be able to build. So the people in positions of curriculum design and at the department of education and ministry of education levels aren't doing the hard slugging. They're just letting everything in there. Like it all, it all counts. It all counts. And then if you actually examine a typical grade three English curriculum, and then you look at a grade four and you say, okay, what's repeated? Well, approximately 75% of those objectives are repeated the next year. So I call that a non-trust curriculum because it's saying, oh, I don't think the teacher in the year before is going to do it. So we're going to put it back in. But what the teachers don't know is what are those 25% new concepts that those kids are supposed to learn. So the gap widens and they don't get to it. So in grade six in math, they may not do circumference because they just didn't get to it because they're still trying to teach them how to subtract big digits with big digits. And, And if they had fewer things to master, they would be able to go deep and apply them much more. And they'd be able to put them in a situ- context that's authentic and make meaning with that. So if you have a learning about money and financial literacy, that should be a context for learning about decimals. And then you create a school store. How many school stores are in schools? And oh, they're handled maybe by the parents. But hey, why can't the kids be part of looking at how to set up those budgets and how to do those things? And that's what's missing. Because if you ram so much it's like making a chili and going to your uh, your your spice spice rack and putting every single spice in. Like put them all in, all of it. Is that going to make <laughs> the chili taste better? No, it's not. And that's what we've been doing. You know, we can't get out of the weeds. And nobody is. This is what we should be talking about when we talk about draining a swamp. The curriculum is a swamp, and they need some finesse in order to be able to say hey, this will really lead to this. And they will be able to master much more higher level concepts sooner if they get rid of the stuff that's that's repeated and also get rid of the things that aren't as valuable. You can't tell me that everything in English language arts, if you have 177 concepts to learn in one year, that editing is just one out of 77 concepts. Like editing is powerful. It's important. It gives them empowerment to be able to put their words into action, but it's, it gives equal weighting. So nobody's doing the hard slugging and sometimes they're skipping the reading of, you know, the, the grounding of the research that, that really, I I think certainly inspired me to be able to say, Hey, you know, look, look at myself and say, well, maybe that practice wasn't so healthy when I was doing it. Um, But unless I can see outside of my own world and what I'm doing and find out what is happening in other worlds. And people like you doing these kinds of podcasts are fabulous because now you can, you can, you can certainly plant a lot of seeds with people to be able to sort of, you know, have some discussions at the school level and say, well, what does that, what does that mean here? Amazing. There was little pieces there where my heart was clapping on the inside. So thank you. saying those golden things if you were to recommend some of the key research or theorists that inspire you who would those people be 
Well, there's people in the past and there's people in the present and there's people sort of in between that I, I think have been um, certainly inspiring me. And I would have to start with people like uh, certainly John Dewey and not just because he was hands-on because he had such a big picture of all things education. And the more you read, you more you really understand what is meant by child-centered education. It's not just they have a loving teacher. It's it's bigger than that. These are the actions that demonstrate that. So reading anything John Dewey is is healthy. And and I'm I, I'm fearful that a lot of leaders, especially in um, business-run schools in the U.S. and charter schools, like they may not even know who John Dewey is. But that that is actually a reality that is a is problematic. Um, Elliot Eisner, his ideas about the arts is incredible. And, and, you know, what did Elliot do as a leader way back? He became president of AERA, the American Education Research Association. So he, he believed in the arts so much. He went to become the leader of all educational research for a part of time. And that helped catapult the arts into a, a much stronger place in the curriculum than, let's say, um, I, I will say physical education. And I'm sad about that because you can go to, what is it, the Grammys or whatever these award shows are, and they will feature that music teacher or whatever, someone that they're going to say, look what they're doing at the ground level to make a difference. But if you go to the Super Bowl in football in Canada, you're not going to, or sorry, in the U.S., you're not going to see somebody pointing out some physical education teacher in the stands. So what Elliot Eiser did, he was able to take a subject that people didn't think had as much status and he moved it to the forefront and said, look what it does for creative thinking. But I would say that just because you have arts in your program doesn't mean you have great creative thinking, nor if you don't have them, you don't. Creative thinking should happen in every subject area. So, so definitely Elliot Eisner. Lev, Levin of Vygotsky his ideas about constructing knowledge is so important. And the, the, the theory there, very simply, is that you have a novice, someone early learning. They apprentice with someone who knows about it, so they learn how to talk and behave like an expert. And then they can apprentice with an expert. So you want to move students through that level of mastery, as opposed to you know, ranking kids on, on tests. So even if the top 75% of your kids in your school are proficient, that doesn't matter. All that matters is, you know, who are the, the top people in, in that rung. So, so definitely the psychology in Russia is much more powerful than sometimes certainly what our psychology is based on in many schools, which is Piaget. So I'm a more of a fan of Vygotsky than Piaget because I believe that people can socially construct knowledge. Now today, oh my goodness, I don't think there should be any principal who doesn't have Elfie Cohn, homework myth, sitting on their professional library. Everything he writes is unbelievably brilliant in terms of ease of reading. It's not, it's, it's a tough slug to read Vygotsky, no question, but it's easy to read Alfie Cohn, not because he's a simple writer. He's not writing about something important. He's the most comprehensive writer, I think, out there in education today. So I'm, you know, I, I, I'm certainly in awe of what he does. Um, I love Malcolm Gladwell. And even though he's not an educator and his book about education, you know, probably needs a little more uh, pith to it in a sense, like, okay, Malcolm, come and be in the school for three months and, and then write, rewrite your book, do your next edition. Um, but I still love his outliers book. I think that again, fits with being bold. So I love, love his writing. Uh, Michael Thompson wrote a book in, I think it was 1985 called Raising Cain. It was about how to raise boys. Boys are wired differently. Boys think differently. And I'll tell you, when I worked in a boys school and I was first interviewed, I kind of said, well, that's kind of Oprah Winfrey research. That's what I said. I said, that's not true. You know, they, you have to treat them the same and so on. But when I worked with boys and we created a, kind of a boy-centric curriculum, I learned a lot from the boys about what we would do. And they, they whether they're wired differently or not, they definitely uh, have some advantages to learning sometimes in a, a single gender school. Um, and the research 
tends to point into that direction as well. I'll say a couple more and then I'll stop because I could go on and on and on. Um, Eric Scheninger wrote a book called Uncommon Learning. Well, I wouldn't say that recent, but probably in the last 10 years. It's fantastic. It really challenges the status quo. And I use his quotes all the time uh, because they just are so um, inspiring. Um, I would say Michael Fullen, anything Michael Fullen writes, he's got such insight for someone who really hasn't, you know, been a principal in a school, but he's been around so many and he must, the capacity he has for listening to their stories, I think is powerful. So whatever he writes is, is again, these are people that experts should, should be very familiar with. Uh, I'll just say a couple more. Douglas Reeves, anything Douglas writes. I think he's written a book called The Fearless Leader recently, and I did a, a review for it on Amazon. It was fantastic. You know, he he's probably one of the kindest, most generous uh, people I know. He will, you know, I've only met him virtually, and uh, he will, you know, endorse all my books, and he does mm-hmm. all sorts of things. But people like that are important. Like, you know, I, I think I've had, got back from other experts sometimes. Well, I'd endorse your ideas. I really like them, but you didn't reference me enough. And I'm like, yeah, no, I, that's okay. I don't, don't need that one. But, <laughs> but you want selfless people who are going to do things because they're the right things to do. Um, oh, let's see. Bina Kalik and Art Costa, the habits of mind. I would put that lens on any curriculum and then use that to assess the quality of it because the habits of mind, there's 16 of them that they have defined and they're powerful. So to look through the lens of each one of their dispositions uh, really helps you get an idea of the the depth of learning that is going on, let's say in a project-based learning um, activity. Um, so definitely Bina Kalik and Art uh, Costa, Jack Miller on holistic education, Ken Robinson. I mean, I could watch his uh, his stuff over and over and over again and, and what a loss that is for all of us. And I would say Carol Dweck, these are the people that are pretty common that people know about her growth mindset. And then Ted Spear, he has a school that he started out in in Van, in British Columbia, and it's it's incredible. Anything that he's written a book about his uh, unusual and um, uncommon school is pretty cool. It's it's really worth the read. Uh, Jen Fraser wrote something called "The Bullied Brain," which is unbelievable. Her story of someone coming to learn about neurology to understand not only her own children, but other children who've been bullied and look at it from a physiological point of view. So if you ever want to get a great person for a podcast, she's got a a lovely story that, that she's told. And the last person I'll mention or group or part team, I should say is uh, Lav and Wanger. That's uh, probably not heard much about them, but they created a theory of legitimate peripheral participation that means you go from novice to apprentice to expert, and their work is, is incredible. So I used a lot of it when I did my research on peer teaching. So I'll stop there, but I could go on and on and on. But, you know, these people, they really, and, and I would have to add the things I'm learning on podcasts, this Disrupt Education as a podcast. I listened to um, several of the podcasts that you have. I was like, so inspired by people going out and uh, taking taking risks. And you know what? Yes, please sign me up to be experimental with my kids. There's a school in Toronto called the uh, Institute of Child Studies, which is associated with the uh, University of Toronto. And when women are pregnant, they're lining up to have their kids go to that school. They know it's an experimental school, but they they want one of those spots. It's probably one of the most um, in-demand schools there is. So you have to be able to uh, create a demand over time by having a great reputation and do what you say you're going to do. But, you know, being um, an experimental school um, is powerful because you get your kids get to be touched by um, the best ideas that that we know today. So bring it on. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, everyone out there who's been like, I just can't work out how to beat this system. You just have two years worth of reading lists right there to back yourself <laughs> up with. <laughs> You've got Sorry all about the that. It was pretty long. <laughs> no, but, but do you know what? It's so important because I haven't heard of probably 80% of that list and that concerns me okay. a little bit, right? The, you know, like I've heard of some 
but not all. Mm-hmm. And um, I do get about and I do talk to a lot of people and I've been involved in school leadership training. So I, I'm amazed and confused as to why some of those people sound new to me, but I'm really excited to go and check them out. And I think that any school leaders who are listening and anyone who wants to be a leader or a brave and bold educator is going to be buying a couple of those books at least and and checking those out. But I have a question for you, Barbara. Mm -hmm. You've been an author yourself. You've released a number of books and you've got a new one coming out. I want to know what you're adding to the field. What are you bringing to the table that no one else has said before? Well, I, the latest book that's coming out about teacher retention, I keep things, seems like all roads right now are leading back to the conditions um, that teachers have to work in. And I never thought I'd be there because most of my work, as if you go to my website, it basically is all about, you know, what kids need. It's all about, you know, student-centered learning. And then I said, well, what is actually getting in the way of teachers being able to do um, informed practices, right? And I, and I really sat down and I thought so much about it. And I realized that often if you go to LinkedIn or you go to Twitter, somebody every month will ask the question, you know, what do teachers need to stay? What's going to make them feel fulfilled? You'll see that question come up. And everyone will have different kinds of answers. Some of them are going to be repeated. But rarely do people say they need them all. And that's what I'm hoping to make a contribution about, to be able to say, like in the ne- this book coming out in the spring, I have 15 chapters, but it's about 15 different conditions that need to be addressed if you really want to retain teachers and make their make this profession much more fulfilling. So I'm basically I'm saying and, and I'm hoping the contribution, you know, don't throw them a couple of these bones and say it's okay. You know, throw them a bone and keep them happy. Like, you know, give them a bit more money and then it, it's solved. Check. It's not going to be solved because the system itself is is broken. And so what I tried to do is unravel what's broken in the system that relates to what they do. And I think, you know, I I can I can certainly share them now, but my, my, I guess when you listen to them, it's more like Barb's not saying just do one or two of these. She's saying you've got to do them all. And, and that's bold, I think, um, because some people say, oh, you can't afford them all. But that's another question I can answer because that was really the first book that I wrote about how much school costs and mm-hmm. you, you can afford these. So number one is more pay. Number two, Smaller class sizes, no surprise there. Number three, time to polish, prepare, and reflect. That's really missing. Number four, time to teach and learn. So stop these silly schedules with 40 minutes or 45 minutes, and then they rotate to another classroom. They need 60 to 90 minutes minimum if they're really going to have application and deep learning. So that gets in the way of them having the conditions they need to be able to be the best they can be. Number, where am I? Five, time for robust professional learning. Like the time for it. Like where is it? What does that look like? And it's not 45 minutes once a week where all the teachers in that grade get together and then they share and then they're supposed to be developing a unit plan in 45 minutes for the for the for the whole month or whatever it might be. Um, it's impossible. So to think that those those, you know, that 45 minutes is helping. It's a nice share time, it's nice social time. You get to know how the kids are doing, but that's not professional learning the way it needs to be. If you're gonna bring those people together, they gotta be there for a full afternoon. Um, especially to be able to do something of value, just like the students. Let's see, number six, a reduction in the volume of expectations. I've already spoken about that. You can't have 76. Take it down to 10. How are you going to take it to 10 or 12? Can you do that? If you can, see how they all fit together on a scope and sequence from SK to grade 12. And let a grade be responsible for it. You don't have to have the same person teaching adjectives for six years or different people teaching it for six years in a row. Let that let that live inside another and inside a grade on its own. Um, seven, be trusted to assess students. Okay, why do we have uh, in standardized testing? Because we don't trust the results the teachers are giving us. 
That's ridiculous. They know more about what those students know than anyone else. And they must be trusted as professionals. So I really feel strongly about that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> number eight, uh, be respected and recognized for their insight, action, and creativity. So, you know, don't give them a, a sense of you, you've deviated or why aren't you on the same page at the same time in these unit plans? Uh, every, every classroom is different to, to bring unit plans together and say they all have to teach the same thing at the same time makes no sense whatsoever with the research that exists today. Number nine, support and do new things. 10, they need mentors and meaningful performance appraisal. <laughs> oh, no, I apologize. There's a skidoo going by and my dog is going to bark at it. <laughs> That's just happens. <laughs> okay, I'm almost done. I've only got four more. Um, number 11, support to enhance family community communication and resources. So family communication is, it can be very difficult for, for teachers and they really do need help and support to make that work because they shouldn't be isolated pillars in a school community. They're a part of the community. How do you make them productive instead of being reactive um, in maybe perhaps what they do? If they feel the school is gatekeeping them away, then that's going to add to all sorts of uh, problems and which can be changed. All right, I'll keep going. I'm almost done the list because the list itself is uh, it's really what each chapter is about, but I hope it gives you a sense as that it's comprehensive. Um, 12, ample access to resources. Uh, 13, stunning and stimulating spaces. I'll repeat that, stunning and stimulating spaces. Okay, where we used to shop 100 years ago doesn't look the same as where we shopped 50 years ago, doesn't look the same as where we shop today. But stunning and stimulating spaces, our schools have to be different than looking like they did a hundred years ago. Mm. Uh, 14, teacher leadership opportunities. Flatten the leadership stru uh, structure. They don't need this so much top down with so many people doing non-instructional roles who are teachers. I was a teacher as a principal. I always insisted on teaching. I had to teach a class and at least one class. And I would insist in my in administrative team say, which classes are you going to teach? And then build teacher leadership that way. Mm. And the last one I'll say is working in healthy and safe environments. So, so really breaking those out, what do those looks like? What are some samples of innovative schedules that could make that happen? That's what I really uh, hope will be a contribution and not just doing one of them. How are you doing all of them? And that's the question I ask of, of trustees. How are they going to make sure this can happen? So big question. Sorry for the long answer. <laughs> no, it's, it's actually so interesting. And I think that there's going to be a lot of conversation coming out. I do urge everyone who is in school leadership or system leadership out there to get their hands on this book. What's the title going to be, Barbara? It's Teacher Shortages and Retention. Not an yeah. not a sexy title, but it 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 go hits the point. I think it's the table of contents which will um, be interesting. I think for people, and then when they look at the examples inside of what that can look like if you restructure and repurpose your budget to make it happen, that's that's what people don't know how they just assume that they can't afford it. Yeah, so you take that book, you twin it with what what's a great school co schools cost, and you've actually got the answer to all of all of your problems <laughs> so look we've got a solution bring us which is great that's what we need this I mean this is the book that I wish I had the experience to write but I don't so it's, thank you thank you for doing that like you've uh, brought a great gift and it's the perfect timing um, to have those solutions at this point when we're in such a crisis which I can guarantee I can absolutely say is is the case I've been back out in schools in the last few weeks schools are trying to run their schools with three or four staff under they're cancelling electives it's it's yeah. not looking good um, and these are not just some of those tough government schools no one wants to work in some of them are lovely schools some of them are independent schools with plenty of money they just can't get the staff that they need because teachers every Every casual teacher I've met has said, I do not want to work full time. I'm not signing mm -hmm. a contract. 
And I'm one of those people because at the moment I need a bit of flexibility to travel. So it raises a lot of interesting questions. Uh, There's going to be some fantastic conversation that can come out of these books. And I'm really excited to see this one hit the shelves. And I I hope people get their hands on it, not because I'm your biggest fan, because we've only just met, but because it's worth reading. It's got things in there that we need to know. And I don't put my voice behind things that I don't believe in. So Let's all check that out and try and solve solve all these problems because if we can solve it for the teachers, like how the, the flow on effects for kids, it's just going to change everything. Um, and I think happy teachers equal happy students, teachers who are able to be creative can create creative students and um, mm-hmm. that's the kind of world we want to be living in. That's the kind of education system we want. Well, I hope as well that they're not really the answers. I don't like to use the word um, very much because I hope it inspires people to think, oh, but what about, Mm. in a a good way to say, well, what about chapter 16? What about chapter 17? What about, and, and they're going to, they're going to look at their locality and their, their community and their context, and they're going to see what other things need to be addressed. And maybe they don't, they're not, some of these things collapse and work together, um, you know, in their, the needs that they have. It's just a question of just putting some bold ideas out there to say, I think on LinkedIn the other day, I just saw someone say, well, and they're very, um, I would say from a really coming from a really good place to say, we don't have any answers to this, but we just need to come together and we'll figure it out. Well, I agree, but sometimes you need a stimulus that will help you break through the ceiling. And I, I, I say that because um, a lot of schools will give out surveys to parents, satisfaction surveys, or to teachers or to students. And if they don't kind of let them know about what else they could be doing, then all they're doing is keeping themselves inside a very insular context. But if before they do a survey, like at the school I was at in Virginia, it was a Da Vinci school, we had this workshop and the parents were helpful in setting it up. And we we basically looked at the, the coolest ideas we could find. Everybody had to research at least five model schools in different places like High Tech High and, and so on. And we set up um, computers, 30, I think 35 computers around the gym. And then we had this big piece of paper in the middle and say, okay, go find out about some things, spend two or three minutes and browse and just come back and tell us what you want to know more about. Because when we do strategic planning, or I call it more school improvement planning, how do we bring other ideas into the mix? And if you don't open up to what you know, kind of really interesting things are going on, um, then you're just going to get people, I say, greasing the the gears of the the same ship. And if you need to build a new ship, then you need to see what other materials you can use and what other inspiration can be there. So anyway, I just hope this is really just more um, ideas for, for getting people started. Exactly. And having those points to talk about and battle out and work out if they're good or not. I love that idea of bringing in new ideas. I think that's probably the biggest challenge we have. It's like, I'm, I, I sat down to write a book called Teacher Healer. I was never going to make a podcast. And as oh. I was writing, all I could write about was what I knew and what I didn't like. And mm. I went, this isn't working. I can't, I can't do this. No one's going to read this. No one cares. I need to find out what's good I need to find some solutions to bring to the table here. And um, that's what we need. We need to find some solutions. And, yes, we can be inspired by other people. Um, And and there's so many nuggets I've been discovering through my podcast of people doing great things. But there's more than that as well. There's that creativity of like, well, I mean, High Tech High didn't come out of nowhere. Someone created it, you know. That was an idea. And without having those conversations, we don't get to have those ideas. And without having the permission to be bold and brave, we can't take action. So yeah. I guess that's the challenge I want to put out to to the listeners um, after this episode is, you know, where can you look for ideas? How can you create spaces where you're able to be creative and have these conversations? Because only through bringing us all together can we come up with something new. Um, well, you asked about other places that people can go. I, I had. Um... 
my school in Washington, D.C., I had the most incredible teaching team. Um, and they had never been given opportunities to do professional development outside the school. They would typically they would bring in test preparation people and they teach them how to analyze data. And that that was kind of the extent of, of their PD. And I wanted to move us in a, a, a little bit different direction in terms of really helping kids become, you know, bigger creative thinkers. And so uh, 12 of them were sent to uh, Harvard Project Zero in Boston. And it cost me at the time $35,000. And people would have gone, oh, how could you do that? <laughs> this, this is money that usually is, you know, in my budget as a principal that I could have gotten. Well, I, I've been to Project Zero and I, I knew about it, but I felt it was more important to give these opportunities um, to new teacher leaders. And those teacher leaders in return, um, they came back and they taught for only half a day. They didn't lose contact with their students, but the other half of the day, they became mentors for other teachers, who um, less seasoned teachers. And they co-planned with them for an hour, one day a week. And the next day they went into the classroom and co-taught with them for the hour, one day a week. And they usually had three to five different mentees. So that was their afternoon. So I took a typical top-down leadership structure and all of a sudden, you know, I now had on my lead team, I don't know, six or seven vice principals, and they all had different capacities. One was academics, one was special ed, one was teacher development, you know, they one was the arts. So they all had different areas, but at the same time, they went in with their expertise area and and really changed the, the culture of the school. And they they felt confident because they had that boost of going to Harvard Project Zero. And, that, and there's a picture of them. They're so proud of being at Harvard for a whole week. So we paid their accommodation, their flight, the registration, and they came back um, really, like, to me, that's evidence of, of what we did to build teacher leaders. We just didn't give them a role. And then what they did in return, they came back and set up this whole structure. And it was powerful. And many of them have moved on to be leaders in, in other schools. And I'm, 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 I must say I'm very proud of what 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 that particular group did and what they continue to do today. Um, I could go on and on about them, but it was uh, a very powerful experience, that's for sure. Amazing. Well done. Good on you. <laughs> Starting, you started a wave, you know, a ripple and turned into a wave. It wasn't a ripple, it was a wave to start, but good job. Um, we oh, need more you. of that. We need more of that. I've got one final question for you. Uh, there may be more, but this is my final planned question. It is, uh, what is your wish for education? You can have more than one. Well, I wish that schools would promote more contexts where students can invent and, and create um, things with what they're learning. I, I don't think that learning should stop at being able to choose um, the most correct answer on a, on a multiple choice test. Um, and it involves forming relationships and, and not just about being with others, but being able to do things for others. So I really believe service learning is, is something that people call a soft skill and I call it an essential skill or ex essential experience, I would say. And, and that's something that, again, like when you mentioned electives and these things are being let go, service learning and student leadership would probably be one of them. So I think it needs to have a much more prominent role. And, and that can look like Model UN. Um, it can look at like a school building their own museum um, and, and interviewing, you know, the past people in the school and finding out about the community. Um, but it really has to be moving beyond um, the, the boredom that's there for students and, and certainly there for, for teachers who, who can't deviate from a controlled curriculum. Um, schooling has to not be about compliance. It's about being able to make the world better. And to do that, you have to go beyond what is. So I'll, I think that's probably what I wish for the most is that there be more doors opened, that there be more leaders in positions of responsibility, not so many managers. There's a lot. And I would like to see schools of education and graduate schools of education um, lead again. 
because they've stopped leading and they've 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 they're following um, bureaucracies at the Department of Education level. They should be really leading innovation, and that's not what's happening. And certainly, when I was going through graduate uh, school in the nineties, um, you know, I was starting to see that trend, but it's, uh, it's certainly even more uh, prominent now that it's all about accountability and, and examining data. And the most important data that you should examine is qualitative data because you want a quality school. So you need to see that a slice on a test is a very small slice of what a school is. And do you even need to spend so much and invest so much in that slice at the expense of putting more kids in classrooms and, and paying teachers um, so poorly? So, mm. I do have one. Big question. question. I do have <laughs> one more question based on that because it's very thought-provoking. Um, I, I know that in the arts and sports, that's something that a lot of principals will use to market their schools they're, they're because they're, they're those community-based kind of environments, right? Like the arts always connects with community. Um, it's mm -hmm. a great way to draw people in and it's a great sort of real-world learning project and often, you know, you get the opportunity to do performances that can be based on real-world issues as well um, and that look at some bigger themes. Um but I have recently taken issue with that when the schools don't have that strength behind their arts and sports programs um, and they're still using their arts and sports as a marketing tool. And I was thinking of ways <laughs> that schools might be better able to attract and retain staff and students. And I just wondered if you had advice for schools who might be struggling with enrollments, who might be struggling to find staff, how can they find alternative channels to draw the right people into their schools? Um, you know, is there one particular innovation that they could focus on? Or, uh, yeah, I just wondered if you have any tips for those schools. Um, I think you bring up a, a really good point about this concern about the number of bums in seats. Mm -hmm. um, that's actually... Um, one of those quantitative measures I know in a lot of charter schools in the, in the U S and when I went to the one school that I was there at it, um, I think we had over 425 kids and, you know, the board at the time says, well, how are we going to get like 500? And I said, why? <laughs> mm. Well, because there's there's money attached with each bottom that that is going to be sitting in a in a seat in a classroom, and we know from the research on small schools that there's nothing that compares to the education that children in small schools get. And if a principal can't name every child and know all the family members' names of those children of those children in the school or those students, then the school's too big. And I'll say wives, that's because it's going to be nurturing and unfortunately uh, creating a lot of opportunities for kids to feel disenfranchised. Staffs that have, you know, 75, 80, 100, 100 staff members, again, that can happen with staff members to feel disenfranchised. There's just so many. Um, but smaller schools is, is, a, is actually a good thing and getting... Um, trustees and, and people to be a bit more educated to understand that, to say that if, if enrollments are going down, there are actually opportunities for repurposing that allow for a lot of um, changes to be made. And, and that also includes things like teachers being hybrids. They've got the math and the science that they can teach. Um, they've got English and social studies they can teach. And that's interesting because when they do both, they can create interdisciplinary projects. So it, it can be seen as a concern because of the loss of financial um, uh, you know, budget in, in terms of revenue. But at the same time, that means your school can afford what your revenue will have. And is your school in place to be an employment agency. And it's not, it's there to educate students in the best way it can. And so I think really we have to think carefully about, well, how can another small school open up and, and, 
and help that situation. But to build larger schools in the U.S., these schools that have 2,000 kids, and then you first thing I look up when there's a, a school shooting is how many kids at the school. That's the first thing I look up. And what have you noticed? And no surprise. Big, no surprise at all. There are too many kids. Um, right. And these kids are lost souls. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just, you know, I'm certainly not a lot of sympathy when they're taking lives. But at the same time, we're cultivating that culture when we have these large schools. So they need to be able to change them up. And to be honest, um, you need more teachers if teachers are going to have the time to do the planning that they need. So you really shouldn't be losing teachers one way or another. They should be making the program work for the numbers they have. So it's not really the arts program or the other programs. Schools should be creating more authentic things that they get to do at schools. And those schools that will do that, like project-based schools like Carl Wagner, he's doing some amazing things in Australia. I'm sure people are lining up trying to get into his school because of his Model UN program. Um, but these are the things that, um, you know, will will surface. But schools can't just say, we're just schools and these are the textbooks we use because it's going to, there's not, there's no demand for that because the internet is is there and kids are already building tunnels under schools and teachers to learn. And mm-hmm. so the sad part is they're not learning with, um, I would say apprentices or experts, they're kind of learning on their own. So it's not necessarily safe and it's not necessarily, um, you know, you've got fake news that's there. So what are they, what are they actually learning without having someone to learn it with that um, is a little more mature in the, in the process. And that can be an older peer, peer leader. There's just so many things that they should be doing. Internships, I would say Craig Griffey, the work he's doing in Wisconsin, unbelievable. Those students are all going into once a week, going uh, out into the field and working directly in high school in in different companies and getting their um, all sorts of construction papers and pipe fitting papers and so on. So these are the things that are the future. And they're not just for the non-academic students. We need to get rid of that divide because mm-hmm. if you have physics, the application potentially is in construction. The application is in how we, we design uh, homes and we design um, the kinds of things that we need in the community. So we have to get rid of those old ideas that, you know, industrial arts are for less academic students. I think, you know, a lot of people like me at my age, I'm over 60. I wish I knew how to, to do something with motors. I wish I knew how to do all sorts of things. Um, and, and I don't, I have a lot of academics, but I could have had a lot less of that and a lot more of the other to apply it. And then I probably have a better understanding of the academics. Yeah, that's really true. Thank you. So I think what I took <laughs> from that in answer to my question was to sort of leverage what you have, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. look at your community. What do they need? Mm-hmm. And do something about it. Don't just operate in a silo. Brilliant. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed no this conversation. I, you know, I think those 15 conditions are really worth an explore. I'm really looking forward to going back into those and having some chats um, with some people in my life. Um, and, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm so happy that you've also got that book, How Much Great Schools Cost, and we didn't go into that very much. But um, I think can, can you just do a quick summary before we go on what, what that book's the, the thrust of it? Um, sure. It's, um, I have that one. The other one's not out yet. <laughs> Sorry, but basically it starts with a message from Joe Biden. And this book was written about five years ago when I started and it was before he was running for president. So it was just a, a fluke that it happened to, uh, to start it. But he basically says, show me your budget and I'll tell you what you value. Mm-hmm. And The issue there, when I found when I was starting schools, is I would go to my accountants or my finance and my business folks that were on my team, and I would say, okay, this is how we need to reshape the budget so it would would move in that direction. And before, we didn't have a line item for the teachers to go to Harvard, for example, right? It didn't exist. And the first reaction was, well, we can't change the line items because... We need to see trends. And if you take that line item out, 
or you add more in, it'll change where they are and you won't be able to see the trends. And I said, yeah, but that's the trend in a value of whatever it is that started the school and whatever those line items would be. So I basically learned that, yeah, you know what? It's it's more important to be able to change the values and repurpose a budget to to really fulfill the needs of the students and the and the community that you have, as opposed to having some nice charts that show trends. Mm. And so that's the kind of was a, one of the first discoveries that I had. I said, well, it doesn't matter. This may be your budget, but this is going to be my budget because it still is going to, um, you know, save money. And a lot of people would say, oh, well, you know, you can't, uh, how can you have that many vice principals? And I said, but they're teaching half of the day. So when I change the staffing structure specifically and the roles that people have, then you can save money because staffing is where most of the money in a school goes. Now, there's a whole other area in districts that deal with the the funding that goes into the non-instructional people. But to fill a central office full of great teachers and none of them touching students is crazy. They need to reduce that central office and they need to put a lot of those people back in schools to be maybe working half a day on an administrative level, but the other half keeping their, their skill and their talent alive. And that's this book talks about ways to save money. Um, textbooks, for example, if one company has decided they're going to, or one, I know in DC, one, one textbook company was, um, given the go ahead to write the test, the big test at the end of the year. And so then everybody had to throw their old math textbooks out and get the, buy this companies because they knew that if they had, I mean, it's, it really doesn't like, we can't do that in Canada, but they do it there. Um, it's just, kind of not allowed because it's conflict of interest when you think of it, Mm. but that's what happens. And that was $800,000. Like, and I just said, what? We've got six sets of math textbooks from so many. And every three years when they change the person who's doing the test, I said, bingo, that's where we're going to save some money. We're going to just teach math better. So we didn't buy the new textbooks and we didn't buy all that new stuff. We sent them to Project Zero. They came back. We had the mentors and their scores went up on that silly test by almost 10%, which is unheard of in DC in one year, because usually they're really happy if they go up one or 2%. Mm. So then everybody started looking in and we're an art school. We weren't a STEM school. How did that happen? Well, it, you know, we, we use that money in different ways and we put, you know, less kids in classes than, than what they, they did. And our special ed team was amazing. They said, well, give us, you know, a, a group of 10 kids and we'll teach them English. And we don't, we don't want to just shadow what's going on. We'll, we'll do that teaching. So when you change what people do and you can get their their support for that, that they want to do that, then you can find so much money that is wasted, especially in non-instructional staff. I mean, I had a couple, one coach who I think when I first arrived, she quit and because she didn't want to teach. I said, well, teachers want to see some model classes. At least can you do that? Oh no, I just want to show them the data board. I'm like, no, they need help teaching so that whatever's Mm. on the data board later is going to be helpful. So then instead of having coaches, we restructured um, and gave leadership roles to those, those teachers who were, you know, incredible teachers, but we didn't let them be completely away from the kids because why should kids miss out when, when they get, when the great teachers are around, they go to head office or they go to central office or they, they become administrators. So it is a different, uh, perspective. <laughs> and it, it takes a, a team of uh, leaders that look upon leadership in a, a different style, but you can find the money. I think it was, um, oh, um, there was just so many people that gave me some feedback about the book, but they basically uh, said in a review, uh, find out how much the great cost school costs and then pay for it. Just do it. If that's how much it costs, then do it. And I just proved with a lot of uh, sample budgets that it, it you can certainly afford it and you can probably save money by doing the kinds of things that I mentioned with all of those conditions were very similar to, to what I spoke about, what the school conditions might be. But um, yeah, you can't afford it. And, uh, you know, anybody can find it if people are transparent with budgets so you can look inside and take a look. Thank you. Thank you, thank no you. Worries. Any school leaders out there listening, if you're not inspired by that, like get out of the job. 
<laughs> like if you've listened this far and you're still not into that idea, I don't know why you're here, but definitely wrap your hands around that book. There's no more excuses. You can do all the things that you dream of doing in education. You just need a little bit, a few of the ideas that are coming in here. Um, I'm so excited about this. I'm looking forward to getting this episode in the hands of as many school leaders as I can all around the world. And if you've got friends, please forward it to them. Um, thank you, Barbara, for all of your insights and expertise. Um, and, yeah, do you have any final comments? I think I've spoken a lot. <laughs> I really appreciate the opportunity, uh, Janine, and I really um I really enjoyed listening to the podcast that, that, you know, that you've put together and, and, you know, you're obviously finding some, some people that um, have some great stories. So I'm just really um, honored to be one of them. Thank you. Thanks so much, Barbara. Have a great afternoon and thanks for joining us on Teacher Healer. Thanks for listening to the Teacher Healer podcast. Find more episodes and information at www.teacherhealer.com. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate us or refer us to your friends and colleagues. And if you care about saving the world from plastic, click on the Zero Co link in the show notes to learn what you can do to help. 